current political situation is dire. Uh, the disregard for science and addressing climate change is distressing, uh, but we will course correct. I firmly believe that. Not with, you know, no matter what happens tomorrow, I believe there will be course correction. Um, I, I suggest that there will be people who are on the wrong side of history tomorrow and, and on the wrong side of the climate debate as well. Uh, fundamentally, we are in a fight against ignorance, uh, and we have to be part of that fight and, and play a critical role in engagement and research and education and, and, and just not giving up the good fight. And, and I think ultimately be accountable on a personal level for, for how we've addressed this problem. I think a common purpose such as climate change can actually unite us as individuals, right? Uh, and COVID has shown us that we can come together and bring the necessary resources to address a common threat. It is even shown that we can reduce our carbon emissions, right? Global emissions went down by almost 9% in the first half of 2020. And yes, it was incredibly painful, but we can consume less, right? And that decrease in consumption that we saw hasn't been seen since World War II. So I remain a naive optimist, and I believe our trajectory is towards good, towards a just, humane, and an equitable society. Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? and how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change. Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? I've had the real pleasure of working with Martin Nilsson for the past eight years since he joined Dialogue as a fellow partner. Martin is one of those truly inspiring individuals whose energy and enthusiasm for green design is contagious, and he's a magnet to all young dialoguers passionate about learning how to design buildings that make a real difference in the world. He is both a registered architect and a mechanical engineer, and brings over two decades of experience and leadership to Dialogue's urban design, mixed-use development, higher education, and transportation projects. He is passionate about developing regenerative design solutions that are socially, economically, and environmentally responsible with a portfolio of work that has been recognized with awards for planning, architecture, and innovation. Martin's recent project work includes the new LEED Gold Certified Campus Energy Center, the new Exchange Residence, and the Bus Exchange at the University of British Columbia. He led the Sustainable Design Strategy and LEED Certification process on the University of Calgary's U District neighborhood, the largest ND Platinum project in Canada. And he is currently leading the rezoning of the Heatherlands, a 21-acre development in Vancouver with the MST Nations in partnership with Canada Lands Corporation. Prior to joining Dialogue, Martin led the design and construction of UBC's Centre for Interactive Research on Sustainability, otherwise known as SIRS, a LEED Platinum Certified and Living Building, considered one of the greenest institutional projects in North America. He has taught at the UBC School of Architecture and Faculty of Engineering and is currently serving on the UBC Land Use Committee and has served as the chair of the UBC Advisory Urban Design Panel. 
He is currently serving on the Board of Directors of the Canada Green Building Council, CAGBC, the RAIC Committee on Regenerative Environments, and the Squamish Nation Advisory Design Panel. In today's podcast, I talk with Martin about his design philosophy, his belief that sustainable design is no longer enough, that we must now design to create truly regenerative buildings, buildings that actually improve the ecosystems they are part of. We also talk about what gives Martin hope when things are looking dark and his belief that good prevails, but that sometimes we have to course correct to get back to a good and just society. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And if you do enjoy this podcast, please consider sponsoring us by using our Patreon link that you will find on our podcast homepage at www.tfcipodcast.com. This is a not-for-profit podcast, and all of our sponsorship goes to covering our production costs. So if you like what you are hearing, please become a patron. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Craig. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. You trained first as a mechanical engineer and then as an architect, which strikes me as the perfect background for becoming an expert in sustainable architecture. So why don't you start off first by talking about when your interest in sustainability emerged and how it grew to become the focus for your career? Yeah, I'd love to do that. It's a, it's a, it could be a fairly long answer, but the short answer and the kind of why it became the focus is that, you know, I believe that climate change is the most serious crisis we face as a civilization. And we've known that for the last 20 years. We're also aware that climate change is an issue of equity and justice. It hits the poor, the disenfranchised, the hardest. And we don't fully understand the health impacts associated with it either. The longer answer is, uh, I guess there was, no re- there was really no grand plan of combining engineering and architecture to tackle climate change. It was a long process, and I was fortunate to have been guided by a series of mentors who provided guidance along the path to what I'm doing today. But it actually started with a midlife crisis just as I was turning 30, which is fairly early, I guess, but you got to get these things out of the way. I was working as a process engineer in a plastics extrusion plant, PVC, ABS, plumbing pipe, nasty stuff for so many reasons. Uh, I started working there right after graduation from UBC Mechanical Engineering. That was 1986, and uh, it was probably my second interview, and I was hired on the spot by a fellow named Bill Anderson who would be my first mentor. He was generous with his time, he had a great sense of humor, and he was someone who gave me an opportunity to learn about leadership. And at 24, I was on a leadership track within this 3,000-person corporation, put in charge of the maintenance team and uh, also leading special projects. During this time, my interest in art and industrial design started to grow. I made sculptures from worn out extrusion screws. All my friends had a extrusion screw sculpture in their home. <laughs> I was doing, I was doing black. Do you still and white. have some of those in your house? Oh yeah. My wife won't let me put them in the living room though. So it's, um, they're kind of in the basement, but <laughs> they're still there. Anyways, they were legendary. Um, and they're quite beautiful by the way. I'll have to show you sometime. Oh, you know what? Why don't, time I was why don't doing... we put uh, a photograph? Do you, if you have a photograph, let's put it in the uh, show notes. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll find one. During this time, I, I, I was doing these sculptures with the extrusion screws and uh, black and white photography. I was doing dark room printing and paintings that were using copper sheets and chemical combinations to create different colored patinas and textures. I had a little note, uh, a notebook of experiments to try and achieve certain colors. And so this was kind of uh, one of the obsessions I had. There was 
there was clearly a disconnect between my day job and what my passions were. And there were two experiences where the kind of catalyst for change happened. I was The first one was a business trip to a huge plastics conference in uh, Chicago, where I had a chance to explore the city. Uh, and take in some of the, take in the architecture. I was blown away by the skyscrapers. I didn't know that Chicago was the birthplace and kind of R&D lab of early tall buildings. Uh, the second was actually a visit to Seattle where by chance uh, there was an exhibit of Frank Lloyd Wright's work. They had built a Usonian house in the parking lot of a mall, complete with scale models of his work. And on the drive back from Seattle, and I still remember exactly where I was on the I-5, I had this epiphany, and it was like a fully formed idea that I was going to become an architect, and this would be my creative outlet. And by my 30th birthday, I had quit my corporate job, and I was working for a local architect, a sole practitioner who designed single-family houses. It was a great apprenticeship, and after a couple of years, I had a good portfolio of art and design and applied to the UBC Masters of Architecture program. It was there that I met my next mentor, that was Ray Cole, an engineer who taught environmental design in the school. His lectures were not to be missed. They were brilliant, compelling, and they were the first introduction to climate change and our responsibility to address it in our work. I learned about high And, and really, Ray has been the father of sustainability across Canada. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and he has taught hundreds and hundreds of students who have gone out into the world and taken his learnings, right? It's, it's, it's quite amazing. So I, I learned about high-performance buildings and the idea that climate response, daylighting, natural ventilation were not only energy strategies, they, were also, they also had an impact on human experience, comfort, productivity, and most importantly, they were drivers for architectural ideas. My graduation thesis was actually a copper mine outside of Kamloops that brought back an obsession with copper and also was a chance to explore issues of resource extraction, environmental degradation, regeneration, and the potential of architecture to play an important role in an interpretive and educational experience around those issues. When I graduated, Ray told me that I should apply at Peter Busby's office. Peter was a student in Ray's first year of teaching at UBC. The day after dropping my resume at his office, Peter called me and asked me to come down and show me your stuff. <laughs> he believed in integrated design, and he liked the combination of engineer and architect. And at the end of the interview, he asked me to start the next day. Peter was a maverick. He was a risk taker, uh, absolutely dedicated to addressing climate change in his work. He was visionary, relentless in the pursuit of excellence, and he had a sharp critical eye. And most importantly, he gave me enough rope as I could take. So I had some amazing opportunities. He was the first to buy a hybrid. Do you remember the Honda Insight? That's right. That's right. That was the, 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 the first classic. He bought it online, sight unseen. His kids picked the color. It was sustainability green. And it eventually became the company car, which meant we could walk or ride to work and have a car available to go to meetings. Peter's firm grew from 20 people when I started to 40 when it was eventually merged with Perkins Will. They were headquartered in Atlanta. It's tough to call it a merger when 40 people join a firm with 1,500 people, <laughs> but that was the story. This proved to be a great opportunity to work internationally, uh, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia, competition in St. Petersburg. But after 15 years, it was time for a new chapter, and the opportunity to work with Dialogue was presented to me by Bruce Hayden, a partner at the time, who had also been a member of my thesis committee. I'm very thankful to have landed in this multidisciplinary, highly collaborative practice. It was actually the partnership model and the opportunity to pursue a range of work that brought me over. 
My background is Danish, so I speak the language. I studied architecture for a summer in Copenhagen, my best summer ever. Denmark is essentially a social democracy, not to be f confused with socialism, as it's based on a free market economy. And I see the dialogue partnership model as somewhat like a social democracy. All our major decisions are made by the consensus of our 50 partners and in the best interest of the practice and the broader community. We work in a studio model with engineers, architects, interior designers, planners, public engagement experts, landscape architects, all under one roof. And at the same time, we have a backbone of a large firm with the infrastructure and resources to pursue larger scale projects, work nationally, and undertake research and education opportunities and contribute to our community. I, I, full disclosure here, Martin and I are both partners in dialogue and, and have been working together for a number of years. And this is why I really wanted Martin to be part of this podcast. Um, so it, it's a real pleasure to have you on it. And, and I think that model is really indicative of how we work together to actually figure out those tough problems in an integrated fashion. But Martin, given that your career to date has been about reducing the causes of climate change through architectural design, what do you think are the most promising design and engineering strategies for helping us reduce the environmental harm we're causing now? And what are some of the transformational projects you've worked on that best exemplify these strategies? Speaking as both an architect and an engineer, I think the first step is recognizing the impact of the design and the construction industry and how it contributes to the problem. We know that buildings contribute roughly 40% of the annual global greenhouse gas emissions. Roughly two thirds of that is in building operations, so the heating and cooling of the building, and a third from the embodied carbon associated with the building, from the materials that you use and the construction process that are part of building the, the building in the first place. We are part of the problem and have both an immense responsibility and an incredible agency in delivering solutions. And that's, a, that's an amazing, kind of place to be in your career, knowing that you can make a difference. Uh, and that's a really important piece. And one of the reasons I'm with Dialogue, I think we have the, the kind of think tank, the, the brain trust to, to solve some of these difficult problems. Personally, though, I believe that we have to move towards regenerative design, the concept of not just doing less harm, but creating a net positive benefit through the work that we do. And that was really Ray Cole's teaching from, from way back. It requires a very holistic understanding of the problem and the opportunities, not just at the scale of the site or even the community, but the potential of a positive benefit at a regional scale. For example, the impact of water runoff from a building as it enters the groundwater into a stream system and eventually an ocean ecosystem. So imagine if your project could have actually have a positive impact on a salmon habitat. It's a very powerful idea. We're working with uh, an organization called Salmon Safe, and they have a certification process that does exactly that. Regenerative design requires an integrated, multidisciplinary team. It includes ecologists, community health experts, educators, policymakers, and core to this is an extensive public engagement process to find out what people are thinking and, and to share those ideas. In the past, the architect was seen as the visionary with the support of a number of sub-consultants to execute that vision. That model doesn't work anymore as the problems have become more and more complex. The common thread or, or value in all the work that we do is the pursuit of a sustainable future. It's what unites us as a multidisciplinary firm and it's all for a common mission. In terms of some of the transformational projects, I've been very lucky. I've been very grateful to have worked on some interesting projects in my career. 
Uh, I fundamentally believe that one of the best investments that we can make in our cities is transit infrastructure. The great cities of the world are built on the backbone of excellent transit systems that support dense, vibrant places with diverse housing choices, employment, services, amenities, and these are key to a sustainable future. Imagine New York without its subway, which carries 5 million people a day. Yeah, and allows us to create dense cities, and, and dense cities are one-third the production of carbon as the suburbs. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's a, it, you cannot have those dense cities without transit, right? It's a starting point. I think the transit is the great equalizer as well. It offers mobility to everybody, and it contributes to our improved health and well-being. Now, with the current pandemic, the future of mass transit is in flux, but without efficient transit networks, our cities would collapse, as, as you say. An early project with uh, Peter Busby was the Brentwood Transit Station on the Vancouver Millennium Skytrain line. It's an elevated station with a curved mass timber structure shaped like a protective cocoon. It shelters passengers. That's beautiful. Thank you. It, it, it shelters passengers from the elements and the noise and congestion of the traffic below. It was one of the first transit systems to use mass timber as a way of softening the architecture and humanizing the, the daily commute. The radical idea at the time was to attract new ridership by prioritizing the passenger experience and recognizing transit's role as a vital community service. And that maybe if we provide safe, comfortable stations, we could actually convince commuters who could afford to own a car to leave their cars at home. Brentwood changed the way that transit stations were designed and led the way for the use of mass timber in transit architecture. In 2004, it was awarded with a Governor General's Medal in Architecture, rare for a relatively modest and under-recognized building type. This led to 20 years of transit work in Canada, the US, and even projects in Saudi Arabia. Recently, we completed work on three stations on the Eglinton Crosstown in Toronto, and we're currently working on the Broadway subway extension here in Vancouver. It also led to mass timber projects as well. Oh, absolutely. It, it's all, it was, again, I have to credit Peter for this incredible vision. Uh, and that was back, we started that project in 1998, uh, a very different time, right? Another seminal project with Peter was the SIRS building uh, at UBC, at the Center for Interactive Research on Sustainability, and it was completed in 2012. It was the vision of John Robinson, a UBC professor who was a member of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and part of their working group. He believed that although the building sector was addressing sustainable design, it wasn't happening fast enough. He believed that the buildings should attempt to live within their footprint, the footprint of their site, and that a research institution such as UBC should use their buildings as research projects that would help transform the design and construction industry. The story goes that over a number of beers, John Robinson, Ray Cole, and Peter cooked up the concept for the SIRS building. This was 1999, and it was an idea that was way ahead of its time. It took 12 years to be completed, had three different sites, including one off campus near the downtown. Although the concept of regenerative design had been around since the 70s, SIRS was one of the first modern regenerative buildings. The intent was to be net positive in five areas. It was energy, embodied carbon, operational carbon, water quality, and health productivity and happiness. That's a radical idea in itself. 
The building was actually envisioned as playing a role in the built environment. I mean, think of it as a living, active entity, a building that could harvest sunlight, exchange heat with the ground, generate electricity from the sun, restore an ecosystem, cleanse wastewater, recover waste heat from an adjacent lab building, and ultimately educate, improve, and transform. It also transformed UBC and its brand. And SIRS was the genesis of the living lab concept, an idea that other research-based institutions have adopted. It also attracted researchers and students to the university. And I've met people that came to work and study at UBC because of the reputation of SIRS. There's even a SIRS building manual that provides more detailed information on the design of the building and its systems, the construction process, and the lessons learned from the development of the project. But ultimately, it's not the architecture or technology that matters. It's the role that SIRS played as a kind of social condenser that brings students, faculty, and researchers together to, to really exchange ideas, collaborate, and solve globally relevant problems. Eight years after its completion, I still lecture, teach. I tour the buildings for students, both architecture and engineering. And I have to say, one of my proudest moments was touring my son's grade seven class through the building. His teacher's partner was a researcher at SIRS. And the kids had done all their research on the building, and they had lots of questions. And, of course, my son was extremely embarrassed. No, he was extremely proud. Yeah, but you know that. Yeah. <laughs> That shame, that uncomfortable <laughs> shame. Uh, but, the, you know, I, I've also been very fortunate to work on some transformational projects with Dialog in the uh, eight years that I've been here. Uh, we're currently designing two new engineering research and laboratory buildings for the University of Victoria. Again, strangely, our lead client is a climate change researcher. Chris Kennedy, who is an expert in urban metabolism, the understanding of the energy and material flows through cities, is, and he's driving a very ambitious vision for the project and for UVic as a research institution. This is almost a SIRS 2.0 and is taking us to a deeper level of investigation and validation around building performance, operational carbon, and embodied carbon metrics. We're also, and you know about this one, Craig, we're about to embark on the construction of a 10-story mass timber office building, and it would be the new headquarters for Nature's Path. They're a family business that produces organic health food, granola, cereal, snacks, uh, and they are actually organic farmers and, and own thousands of acres of organic farms in Saskatchewan and Montana. And their vision for the project is to leave the earth better than you found it and have just received something that I wasn't even aware of, something called Regenerative Organic Certification. And it's a focus on sustainable land management to sequester carbon in the soil and prioritize the welfare of farm animals and the fairness for, for farmers and workers. So it's a very comprehensive program. So having a building that expressed that ideal was very important to them. Absolutely. And how, how do you... How do you how does architecture express organic farming, right? <laughs> it, was a, it was a tough one for us as a design team, but what we've come up with I think is pretty exciting. It's a, it's the, the exposed wood structural system is based on a honeycomb. Yeah, it feels like a hive in, in the most positive sense. Exactly. No, and we'll put a picture in the show notes. It's, it's a, such a beautiful building. Absolutely. And so what's really cool is that this honeycomb structure creates a series of outdoor spaces that provide shade and opportunities for urban farming. Um, our client is actually a beekeeper and, and understands those kind of cycles and, and the connection to uh, the seasons. And so it's, it's, it's really amazing to, to be working with this group. 
Uh, it has a high-performance envelope with a, a modeled energy use that is 80% below the baseline for a building of this type. So it's actually AIA 2030 relevant. It meets those standards. Fun fact, when we looked at the annual timber production of the Canadian forest industry, we calculated that it would take 40 minutes to grow the wood required for the structural system. <laughs> And that, that was part of the conversation we had with our client and, 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 you know, in terms of just how sustainable wood can be, right? But I feel very lucky. I've already had half a dozen careers. Uh, engineer, architect, planner, transit designer, higher education buildings, and, and all-around shit disturber. So. Well, I, I, and, and I think your, your projects are so emblematic of how we meet the challenges of climate change through architecture and engineering. But I, I guess that leads to my next question, which what are the biggest challenges and barriers do you think to moving these kinds of projects forward? Great question. In the design and construction industry, the, the single biggest barrier, I believe, to, to innovation is not cost, but, but being the first, right? Stepping into untested waters, the associated risk of investing 10, 20, or even 100 million in a, in a building project, right? So the, the prototype projects, the case study buildings are so important to moving our industry forward. It's crucial that we learn from our buildings. This is back to John Robinson, that we gain knowledge from the sizable investment. Not only that we're trying new concepts, new technology, but engaging in research of what works, what doesn't, and then sharing, publishing that knowledge. And that was, again, the, the concept of the SIRS as a living lab. Part of the important research is, is in how we engage with buildings as occupants in terms of control systems, human comfort, and, and user interface. And, and, and sometimes it's evident that we can sabotage the efficient functioning of the buildings that we inhabit, especially high-performance buildings that are pushing the limits of energy efficiency and passive systems and, and even comfort thresholds. I believe that universities and other publicly funded institutions have a responsibility to lead this research and create the poster projects that inspire the next generation of high-performance buildings. I'm especially proud of the work that UBC is doing. Uh, they're an excellent example of leading research-focused uh, innovation, and they're using their built infrastructure as part of that research and the pedagogy. For example, the, the UBC Brock Commons Tallwood Project, and, and, and this is a, a, you know, a game-changing project on a global scale, 18-story mass timber student residence. And at the time that it opened, it was the tallest mass timber building on the planet. And it's a great example of a, I'd say, radical and risky building experiment. And, and the reality, nothing was actually left to chance, but that bold initiative inspired other projects globally. Our Nature's Path client was actually inspired and encouraged and given the confidence to pursue mass timber for their project through the UBC Tall Wood. Pulling back to a bigger picture vantage point, what do you think is the best way to drive large-scale change, the kind of change needed to deal with the causes and impacts of climate change we're now facing? Well, I, I never thought I would say this, but I believe it's policy, policy, policy. <laughs> the, most ex the most significant advancements we have made in terms of green, high-performance buildings came through policy. We see that in progress made with the adoption of the LEED rating system, and that was through provincial policy here in BC requiring gold certification. Uh, the city of Vancouver has been a leader in North America um, in requiring all their rezonings to pursue LEED certification. 
and the city of Vancouver, as an example, is not afraid to, to upset the local development community by pushing building performance requirements that are outside of a developer's comfort zone. They're driving a shift to electrification, the adoption of passive house standards. The city of Vancouver has changed their policy to require single-family houses to have much higher overall envelope performance, uh, a glazing U-value of 1.4, which is quite remarkable. This has moved us to triple glazing. In fact, glazing performance that is approaching passive house standards. And, and for your listeners, passive house standards are um, actually a German development uh, about houses that are essentially, and it was, it was single family houses that were essentially so energy efficient, so airtight sealed that they could essentially heat the entire residence with a light bulb. And, and, and it, it's, a, it's a fairly sophisticated system of understanding energy performance within buildings. One of the things that, that we're seeing in Vancouver with uh, higher performance energy standards, though, is that the supply side is not keeping up. There are local glazing suppliers who can't sell their product within Va Vancouver. Uh, in fact, the first thing they ask is whether the project is in Vancouver because other, you know, they can't actually supply there. I would say the Europeans are at least 10 years ahead of us, and this is driven by more stringent policy, but of course, much higher energy costs in Europe. Uh, a number of other things that I'm, I'm quite excited about that have really moved the dial. Uh, BC launched their Wood First initiative, which encourages the use of wood and structural mass timber in public buildings. Uh, the adoption of the BC step code has really moved the dial, and we're seeing that on some of our typically lesser performance projects. They've now been pushed to that higher standard. We even have a health authority that is considering the CAGBC's uh, zero carbon standard for a half a billion dollar new hospital. So lots of good stuff happening and, and lots to, you know, give me hope. We are both big fans of the importance of district energy for reducing greenhouse gas emissions per capita. What are your thoughts on the opportunities for integrating district energy into existing communities and urban environments? Well, again, uh, I would say the Europeans are way ahead of us. Uh, they've been doing it for a long time and on a much larger scale. However, there's significant momentum across North, North America for district energy, uh, especially, you know, we're seeing it on university campuses and more progressive, more progressive cities such as Toronto and Vancouver. The primary benefits of, of district energy are, are essentially around uh, energy consumption with an overall reduction in energy usage by centralizing energy production and more effectively matching the supply side with the demand side. There's also less equipment within each individual building that's on the system, simpler maintenance, it reduces capital and operation costs, and, and most importantly, District energy systems can operate with a variety of fuels, including low carbon and renewable energy sources. What this means is that fuel switching is much simpler. For example, instead of converting 100 individual buildings from gas to electric heat, you change out or retrofit the central boiler, a much simpler solution. The problem with district energy is that it's incredibly capital intensive, especially if the distribution pipes are not already in the ground. Dialogue worked with UBC to design their new campus energy center, and it was part of their conversion of their existing steam system to much more efficient hot water. The project connected 160 buildings on campus and enabled UBC to meet their 2015 commitment to reducing their carbon emission by 33%. 
The capital cost was $90 million, with roughly 70% of that cost being invested in the distribution network, essentially in the ground, and, the, and also at the heat transfer stations in each building. And of course, one of the big problems is the, is the siloing of operating costs and capital costs. So that even though it may save on the operating cost side, the capital cost silo, say it's, it's higher. So that, that's that, that challenge between uh, siloing of those two. Cost and that's a good point, and that's why we're seeing it at universities, right? Who are the the landowners, the building operators? Um, it's it's one. It it makes sense for them to adopt district energy. Uh, the only other way, and that's what Vancouver is doing, is making it policy, and, and that uh, every major rezoning actually has to look at whether district energy is feasible for their site. Uh, but our interest in district energy is not only the significant carbon reductions, but the, the opportunity to explore the idea of public infrastructure by making sustainable infrastructure that is visible, it's able to inform, educate, and engage the community. And, and it can actually tell a story of both the process and our broader energy issues. So that's, that's what excites us about these uh, district energy. And, and I know uh, a number of your district energy um, designs are housed in mass timber um, buildings. So we're also both fans of sustainable mass timber construction as a way of reducing embodied carbon in construction, as well as making wonderful biophilic buildings. You've completed a number of mass timber projects. So why don't you tell listeners about some of the lessons you've learned about how we can use sustainably harvested mass timber to make highly sustainable buildings and, and using some of your examples of your projects. Absolutely. And I, and I think mass timber is one of the areas where Canada is showing leadership. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. And certainly have to commend the Canadian wood industry for supporting research and innovation. Uh, the U, UBC tall wood building that I mentioned earlier was made possible in part by funding from the wood industry and the federal government. That kind of support will hopefully continue to push the use of mass timber into the mainstream. But the first barrier is really perceived risk around an emerging building technique. There's a lack of industry knowledge and there are certainly associated cost premiums at this time. The second issue is, is sourcing of mass timber that is sustainably harvested. And that's and, one of the cost problems too. Because oh, of absolutely. the supply chain, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and it's, it's really, if you're not sourcing timber with a third-party certification such as FSC, Forest Stewardship Council, um, you're not actually solving the problem, right? Because uh, wood that is harvested under a, a business-as-usual model is not even carbon neutral, let alone justifying it as a carbon sequestration strategy, right? Yeah, for, for listeners understanding, uh, Dale Prest, who was one of our guests a number of podcasts ago, was talking about the fact that the soil holds 60% of the carbon. And so when you do a clear cut, you lose the carbon out of the soil and it's never really replenished, even though you replant it. So if it's not harvested sustainably, then it's a, a really, really problematic. Absolutely. And, and I think there's an interesting uh, or a common metric that we use that uh, one cubic meter of wood sequesters one ton of biogenic carbon, right? If it has been sustainably managed and harvested. And this is a, it's a controversial uh, issue, right? The, it, can you make an argument that you're sequestering carbon in your building if at the end of the building's life cycle, it ends up in a landfill, right? So it's a, it's a longer term 
outlook. And one of the reasons we've both talked about designing uh, buildings that can be disassembled and reassembled, so that mm -hmm. and, and Mass Timber allows for that kind of design as well. Well, and Mass Timber is a is a brilliant prefabrication method, right? The the entire building can be made in a factory and assembled on site, which has major advantages. But uh, you know, the Sirs building that I referenced earlier was was a, a mass timber project, four story, and and on that we learned a lot about the design and construction issues in terms of sourcing, detailing, and assembly. Uh, the project is eight years old now, but it was in the early days of life cycle accounting. We were able to calculate through an LCA analysis that the carbon sequestered in the wood structure offset all the carbon associated with the construction of the building. So the building was actually carbon neutral the day it opened. The big lesson learned though was keep the wood dry during construction. It seems obvious on the wet coast of, of Vancouver here, but our contractor let the wood get soaked right through during a particularly wet October. It cost UBC to remove the plywood subfloor, dry out the building and refinish the glue lamp beams and columns. The good contractors today are a little bit more sophisticated. Well, that, that SERS project was actually a really good set of lessons learned for the whole industry. And, and, and I think the life cycle cost analysis that was done was also important because other players in the industry are using that as a starting point for figuring out what the embodied carbon of their buildings is. It, it is a very, very important starting point. Absolutely. I mean, the, the issue that we're now facing is that it's actually cheaper to buy mass timber from Europe which is disturbing as Canada and BC in particular has an immense forest resource. Yeah, in, in, imported from Austria. And, and I think the challenge that you alluded to earlier is the supply chains are, are not smooth. They just yeah. don't, they can't supply uh, in a way that allows uh, contractors and owners to buy and make sure they can buy when they need to buy. But I, I think that's going to smooth out over the next few years. Oh, I'm optimistic. I, I think the, the kind of inertia that we're seeing already around mass timber uh, will get it there. But I mean, we, you know, we want to buy BC product, but it doesn't actually always make sense. And, and, and I think this is a forest industry and manufacturing issue. As you say, it needs to be corrected. Uh, I believe there is fantastic business opportunity and we're seeing new mass timber suppliers entering the market. But how come Austria can make it cheaper than us? It just doesn't make sense. You're uh, really seen in Canada as one of the leaders in green design, architecture and engineering. What do you see as some of the other opportunities for creating uh, really green buildings and in doing so reducing both operational and embodied carbon? Well, I would say that the big move here in Vancouver is electrification and the eventual elimination of natural gas as a heating source, which is, you know, a fairly radical thought in itself. Uh, we're extremely fortunate to have hydroelectric power here in BC with a, a low carbon footprint. So the switch away from gas makes sense. Uh, we're seeing electric heat pumps are reaching the mainstream, which is something we only had in commercial projects previously. It's actually, you, you can see heat pumps on single family uh, houses, in fact, and the local industry has caught up to that. Uh, it, for me, heat pumps are kind of like magic. For every kilowatt of electric energy that you put in, you get three kilowatts of heating or cooling energy out, essentially using the ground or outside air as a heat source or, or heat sink. Um, we're seeing those passive house strategies applied to the commercial and multifamily residential buildings, which is, is quite a step up. And I think there's a whole bunch of lessons to be learned in that. But as our buildings get increasingly more uh, efficient with lower operating energy and associated carbon, 
the embodied carbon becomes more important to address. On the project with UVic, we're doing an in-depth life cycle assessment. And for this building over a 60-year life cycle, we found that the reverse of the relationship between operational and embodied carbon, that in fact 37-ish percent of the carbon footprint is operational, and 63% is embodied carbon. It would essentially take over 100 years before the accumulated operational carbon matches or catches up to the embodied carbon. So this shift in focus, and I'm, I'm only seeing it in our work in the last couple of years, this conversation is coming to the forefront. In the past, we could almost disregard... Because the operating carbon was so bad that we had to deal yeah, with it. Yeah, it was so yeah. far out there. No, I know. It's now happening around the world, isn't it? And I, and I love this, right? I, I, you know, LCA has really shifted the conversation. Life cycle assessment is the, the key tool to, to cracking this one. Um, so the number one way to reduce your operational carbon is to look at your structure, the material, whether it's wood versus steel versus concrete. And in the case of concrete, which is hard to avoid for, for footings and foundations, then what you specify, the use of high-volume fly ash, Portland limestone cement, and also the efficiency of the structure, such as post-tensioning, to reduce the material. And we, your podcast with Ryan Zizzo was excellent at outlining those issues, and I thought it was uh, really great to hear his perspective. Um, and one of the notes that I absolutely agreed was with... The fact that engineers are notorious for having safety factors on top of safety factors, right? So um, they over-design, and, and there's more concrete, more steel than you really need. Uh, so you have to work with the best engineers that you can find. So you were talking about heat pumps, the magic of heat pumps. What about other emerging technologies? Uh, are there any compelling technologies that you think could make a big difference going forward? Yeah, and I, you know, I'm not a technology-focused practitioner. Um, I, I certainly worry about a dependence on technology in relation to resilience. I prefer low-tech solutions such as passive ventilation and shading. And but you know, there's some exciting stuff happening uh, around, uh, and some exciting R&D around direct air capture carbon. Right. This is the technology developed by um, Carbon Engineering, and it and it looks promising. It's had massive investment from um, the kind of technology, the the, the high tech industry. Uh, I I do hope that that doesn't become a panacea for just continuing with business as usual. You know, the idea that we can just suck carbon out of the atmosphere <laughs> and get back to normal. Uh, is problematic. Uh, I, I see a lot of interest in decarbonizing fossil fuel and, a, and, and an effort to essentially include the cost of decarbonizing the fuel in the price of fuel, not as a tax, but as a direct cost of production of the fuel. Hydrogen storage is gaining uh, momentum. It's been around forever. It goes back to the days of the fuel cell, which is probably 20 years now. But it's, it's at, most interesting, it's a way of addressing the cycles of renewable energy sources, right? The problem that when the sun goes down or the wind stops blowing, uh, you need another source of energy. So, so energy storage uh, is, is, is a very kind of exciting area, and hydrogen seems to be one of the solutions. Yeah, in fact, Canada is known as one of the leaders now in hydrogen storage. It's, it's becoming, we're working on a project in the Toronto studio on um, the Helsinki competition and hydrogen storage and electric storage in combination seem to provide for that back and forth that would allow you to take the intermittency of both wind and, and PV 
into account. Yeah, and it's 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 something that I that is so promising and so important. Uh, we're working with UBC on a on a prototype for hydrogen generation, storage, and refueling, and um, it's pretty interesting stuff. Uh, there's lots of emerging technology that requires further research through investment, and I think the fossil fuel industry has to kind of invest and reinvent their own industry. Yeah, I, th I think they're sort of faced with a cliff too. I think we're all in this together. I, I think there's just a, a dawning realization. Uh, who are some of the thinkers on sustainability who you most admire and why? Well, I think the first that comes to mind, because it's the last thing I read, uh, it's Paul Hawken. Uh, he's certainly a leader and an inspiration. I've seen the Drawdown Project. Absolutely. Drawdown was uh, was <laughs> was an amazing piece of research. Uh, and before that, Natural Capitalism was a, another it's super important uh, book in my kind of career cycle. But I think I think I've, it's more about the amazing group of people and, and kind of leading thinkers that I've, I've been able to build my career on their mentorship, right? Uh, the privilege of learning from Ray Cole through his teachings and, and even continued collaboration in my uh, professional career with Ray and John Robinson for his kind of vision and tenacity, you know, and I, I coined the term naive optimism. With John, it was always a, he would question, well, why can't we do that? They're, they're, what's stopping us from trying that, right? And, and, and he, I remember him saying that it's only a failure if we don't learn from our mistakes, right? And, and so that was really his approach to SIRS, to try all those ideas under, under, in, within one project. Uh, you know, 15 years with Peter Busby, that was uh, an incredible experience. And... Uh, I had a chance a few years ago to see him at the RAIC conference in Toronto and, and, and had a chance to thank him and really thank him for what he had given me uh, in those 15 years. It's interesting to note that both Peter and Ray have received the Order of Canada for their achievements and, 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 and their dedication to the community. And John is a Nobel laureate for his work on the IPCC. So how cool is that? Oh, that's, those are very impressive people. And very contemporary in their ideas and thinking and, and still their contribution. What do you think is missing from the conversation, the discussion of climate change? Are there any other questions or better questions that we should be asking ourselves, Martin? Well, that's a, that's a really good question because there are so many issues swirling within the climate change uh, discussion and debate. My personal and consistent focus, and long before sustainability was even a word, has always been on reducing consumption. It, whether it's resources, energy, fossil fuel, plastic, reducing waste. Do you remember the Canadian one-ton challenge from 2004? It last, yep. it I'm old about enough to remember years. that. Yes. <laughs> it lasted two years, right? It was, and, you know, although ineffective, for me, it resonated. The fact that I still remember it, right? Because it asked for an individual commitment and accountability, which I think is missing from the debate, right? My parents were children during the occupation of Denmark by the Nazis. And then they would talk about that time. And I remember the stories from when I was a child. Uh, they talked about rationing and food shortages, but also a collective will to get through it. Uh, there was a cohesive idea of what your values were. Um, and that clearly had an impact on how they consumed as adults and, and, and the impact that it had on me as uh, in observing how they lived. And, uh, and sure, I had a 
comfortable middle-class experience uh, or existence with my parents, and, and, but they were always looking at long-term utility and value. They were especially careful and frugal. My mother made her own clothes, and, and, and my parents bought quality with a very long-term outlook, and, and you know, how long would that object or item serve them, right? Uh, I've inherited Danish furniture that is as old as I am. It's still functional, it's comfortable, beautiful, and still relevant. And hopefully my children will inherit those pieces. And in fact, the, the mid-century Danish furniture is a product of the aftershock of the war, right? A scarcity of materials, precious resources, and a desire to provide for comfort and human dignity, and, and again, looking at long-term utility and value. Um, and I think we need to think of our built infrastructure in that same way. I saw a, it was a piece of graffiti on a wall, and it said, it is consumption that will consume us all. And, and that was probably 30 years ago that I saw that, and it still stuck with me. And I, So how do we get there? Well, <laughs> what, do we, what do we need to do? Well, you know, we're a very, we're incredibly wasteful society, right? We and encouraged to be so. Exactly. Uh, and we purchase consumer goods that will end up in a landfill, sometimes a week after they leave the store, right? The, the Dollaramas of the world just frustrate me intensely. Um, I think... Policy is obviously important, but I worry that it can absolve us from individual accountability. We, you know, we, oh, we signed up to, we signed on to COP21, that'll solve the problem. So I, I don't know how to push that um, other than public shaming. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a tough one. I mean, I think we, we take that accountability in our work in terms of the buildings that we design, but how do we shift it to the individual? And, and I Anyways, I, it, it's one that I struggle one, with, um, but I believe kind of associated with this is our connection to nature. And without that connection, it's easy to detach, dismiss, and forget that nature is crucial to our survival, right? And that, that's one of the lovely things about mass timber as well. You're, you're, you're connected to it. it absolutely. It, it's so, so clearly, obviously, just, yeah. it's, it's powerful. Well, along those lines, I enjoyed your podcast with Eric Davies, right? And the discussion around the connection and our connection to nature. Uh, we, we emigrated to Canada in 1969. Our, our first house in Vancouver was designed by an architect in the 1950s. It was set on a large site that included both sides of a creek. And I could spend the oh, entire wow. day. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. Were there I trout mean, in that creek? Well, absolutely. Like, I, I would spend the entire day exploring the wilds of that ravine, right? And it was just this little ecosystem that was all my own. And the most incredible thing was that in the fall, salmon would return to spawn. And, and then, you know, at the end of that cycle, the banks would be kind of littered with dead and decaying carcasses of the salmon. So a, a remarkable experience to have in your backyard. Which is the fertilizer for the bank of vegetation. Yes. Yes. It's phenomenal, yeah. Food for, I mean, we had yeah. cougars in the backyard, you know, it was pretty crazy. <laughs> so, but that house, you know, profoundly shaped who I am, my values, and it, and it offered a lens through which to see and kind of interpret the world, and including our relationship to nature and the cycles of the day, the seasons, and, the, and, and, and truly the cycles of life. Um, and, and today there are trees in my neighborhood that make me happy. They bring me joy every time I see them, right? Not just because they're beautiful, but because they are our life, uh, they are our life support, right? Yeah. 
there's, I don't know if you saw this. It was just released in September. Uh, McKinsey has put out a very compelling piece of research. And it's a report titled uh, Valuing Nature Conservation, a methodology to evaluate where safeguarding natural capital could have the biggest impact on climate, economies, and health. It, and, and although difficult, it's trying to provide a business case for nature conservation, right? We'll put a link in the show notes for that. Yes, yeah, it's, that, that's it's, a good paper. Oh, and I, I, I did some research into McKinsey, and it turns out that they're really driven by sustainability. It's part of their ethos, right? And they're one of the best in the world at what they do. They have the, a stellar reputation. Um, but what, what they talk about is, uh, you know, the, the decisions around expanding conservation that are really detailed with analysis and the, and the, the many co-benefits of nature and a balance between opportunity and cost. So this is truly a business case, right? Um, they talk about the potential to reduce atmospheric carbon by 2.6 gigatons annually. And, and for reference, the U.S. emits 6 to 7 gigatons, right? So that's a pretty big number. Uh, at 2.6. And, and it's also an opportunity to create 30 million jobs and roughly 500 billion of GDP in ecotourism, sustainable fishing. Um, and I, I, you know, I get excited just talking about it. <laughs> and hopefully the report will have some influence on uh, well, our future. Well, and, and speaking about influence, um, one of the things that is on both our minds right now is we're recording this podcast the day before the American election. Mm-hmm. And I think um, should the election go to the Democrats, then I think all of these as future green infrastructure will have real bearing. I, I think all of the, we now have all the technology, all the technique, all, all of the things we need to do to do these things. We just have to implement them. Absolutely. So, and we know better. I think we're both on, on tender hooks waiting for that to happen. Well, and we know better, right? We actually know how to solve the problem. This isn't a mystery. It's just that we're not good at doing something yeah. about it. Who's missing from the discussion? Are there people who should be playing a more important role in the, the discussion that are currently not participating? Are there people we should be listening to that we're not paying attention to? Who needs a seat at the table who doesn't have one now? Well, uh, yes, absolutely. And I, I would say that the First Nations have been shut out of the discussion for a long time. Uh, this, is, this is changing, uh, but certainly not fast enough. Um, the McKinsey report, in fact, talks about how the benefits of conservation could potentially flow to underserved and, and indigenous communities, right? They point out that as, as stewards of roughly 37% of all remaining natural lands, the indigenous peoples are critically important stakeholders in this conservation uh, decision-making. And such a meaningful role as well. When you look at the rate of suicide in native populations mm -hmm. and communities is terribly high, and I think it has to do with meaning and purpose. And this would be a really, really anchoring purpose. A absolutely, and, and I mean, we've, we're uh, we're currently working with uh, our three local First Nations, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, or MST as they're called, on a, on a major redevelopment site where they are actually partnered with Canada Lands, and it, it's historic in so many ways. Uh, the partnership with Canada Lands uh, is one. Um, it's the first time that the three nations have worked together in this capacity. And it's a 21 acre site on some of the most valuable real estate in Canada. And through outreach with each of the MST communities, uh, we've learned so many things about the values, uh, their culture, 
and uh, ideas that from which all of us could benefit. The idea that everything is connected, um, a long-term, multi-generational perspective, a connection to nature and natural cycles. And, and for me, the most memorable piece was just the deep respect for their elders. Every meeting that we had, uh, every engagement that we had, started with a meal, and it was a meal for their elders. And um, I just thought that was... Uh, it, it was just quite remarkable. And, and their, their elders are their storytellers and their knowledge keepers, right? So there's this idea of uh, continuity in time that was so important. The first sustainability conference I attended in 2000 in Chattanooga, I believe it was 2000, one of the speakers talked about the notion of the indigenous idea of taking care of the world seven generations out. And of all the things I heard um, that week, I thought it was the most profound because typically our Western culture has such short-term vision of success. In fact, it's come down to the quarter because of company quarterly results. And yet thinking seven generations out would so help us in so many of our, of our challenges right now. Yes, I think we'd be in a much better place <laughs> if we listened to our First Nations. But it's, it's coming, right? Yeah. It's changing. And, yeah. and uh, I, I feel very optimistic about the, the direction that that's moving in. And speaking about being optimistic, what about the notion of progress? I think most people who deeply care about our planet implicitly believe that we can progress towards a more sustainable future. But that belief, I think, lately has been severely tested with the politics we see south of the border and in Europe. Um, what do you think about the idea of progress and the idea that we can make a positive difference in the world? That's a heavy question. Uh, and as you mentioned, we're sitting here the day before the U.S. election yeah. having this conversation. Well, <laughs> you ask, well, what, should I ask you tomorrow, maybe? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and as we sit here, we're facing a pandemic, an economic yep. recession, global threats to democracy. Then there's the climate crisis, yes, right? Yes. So, so why worry? <laughs> yeah. It, it's a very stressful That's time. That's why I asked the question, Martin. Yeah, it's, it's dead on. Uh, I, you know, the current wave of nationalism is not a new phenomenon. We've seen that in, in recorded history, right? And I think that politics in general, and certainly south of the border, can be simplified to a, a we versus me scenario, right? When I, when, I, when I listen to the interviews, that to me cuts through it. I mean, is it about collective benefit or is it individual benefit, right? Common good versus what's best for the individual. And, and again, my, my, my Danish heritage lets me see the world through a lens of social democracy, you know, a belief that taking care of the collective also benefits the individual. Uh, you can choose to see the world through a lens of greed and self-interest and justify your beliefs through either economic, political, or even a religious frame of reference. But I, I firmly believe that good prevails, and that sometimes we have to course correct back towards good, but it's always backed to uh, good and, and a just society. My mother tells stories of, of Jewish families that were loaded on trucks and taken away during the, the occupation. And uh, she talked about the underground resistance movement fighting the Nazis and smuggling Jewish people to Sweden in fishing boats. Um, she remembers... And, and this is one of the, the stories that's really stuck with me. She, she remembers when the occupation ended 
And the Danes who were sympathizing with the Nazis were rounded up, their heads were shaved, and they were driven through Copenhagen in the back of a truck as a kind of public shaming. Those individuals were also tried for treason in a court of law. My grandfather was on a jury that was part of that process and had kept all his notes around what was happening at that time. And I reflect on those connections uh, as to, to who is going to be on the wrong side of history, who is on the wrong side of history. And it really depends who's in power and who's writing history at that time. The current political situation is dire. Uh, the disregard for science and addressing climate change is distressing, uh, but we will course correct. I firmly believe that. Not with, you know, no matter what happens tomorrow, I believe there will be course correction. Um, I, I suggest that there will be people who are on the wrong side of history tomorrow and, and on the wrong side of the climate debate as well. Uh, fundamentally, we are in a fight against ignorance, uh, and we have to be part of that fight and, and play a critical role in engagement and research and education and, and, and just not giving up the good fight. Uh, and, and I think ultimately be accountable on a personal level for, for how we've addressed this problem. I think a common purpose such as climate change can actually unite us as individuals, right? Uh, and COVID has shown us that we can come together and bring the necessary resources to address a common threat. It is even shown that we can reduce our carbon emissions, right? Global emissions went down by almost 9% in the first half of 2020. And, and yes, it was incredibly painful, but we can consume less, right? And that, 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 that decrease in consumption that we saw hasn't been seen since World War II. So I remain a naive optimist, um, and I believe our trajectory is towards good, towards a just, humane, and an equitable society. Myron, I, I was going to ask you next, what gives you hope when things are looking dark? Um, and yet I think you may have answered it in talking about your parents' stories about Copenhagen residents that were willing to rescue and, and ferry Jews to Sweden um, to avoid Nazi uh, persecution. But what, what else? What, what, what do you think that you could impart to our listeners that gives you hope when things are looking really dark? Uh, I'll tell you, the, the, the next generation gives me hope, right? The wisdom and voice of Greta Thunberg gives me hope. A 16-year-old, right? And it gives me a, it gives me hope to, to 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 hear her voice and to hear the support for her voice, right? And all the marches across the globe gives me hope for our collective future, right? I see it in our future leaders here at Dialogue, right? Um, and I see it in the in the broader community, the next generation of leaders. They're they're, they're smart. They're connected. They're motivated. They're passionate. Uh, my kids have grown up with the internet and the uh, and the iPhone, right? And I see their brains as as kind of wired differently, right? And I see that younger generation uh, that I that that we work with. They they process information differently. They see and experience the world differently. Um, they're brilliant. They're focused, yet they're aware and situated in a broad context, right? So my personal focus as a as a practitioner has shifted towards mentorship 
and mentorship of our next generation leaders. And um, it's, it's quite honestly, the piece that gets me out of bed every morning is just working with those folks, right? And, and actually to see the hope and optimism and ultimately accountability, right? We, we, you know, we talked about account of personal accountability before. And, and, you know, they are our future and they deserve to shape their collective future and to have a voice in that. So that's, that's where my hope comes from. Well, that future generation, what advice do you want to give them about what they can do to be part of making a difference and meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative and maintaining hope? What do you want to tell them? Well, I think, yeah, I, I think they're already doing it, right? I would say get engaged, get involved in the discussion, uh, the conversations you have with your family, your friends, your coworkers are all part of that great course correction that we need to make in the next 10 years, right? Uh, the idea that you are part of the solution, no matter where you live or what you do for a living, you are part of ensuring a sustainable future. So leverage your expertise, your knowledge to contribute to community groups or professional associations. You know, I, I sit on the board of the CAGBC, the Canada Green Building Council, because I believe they are playing an important role in our common future, right? And, and I, there's lots of different ways to, to, to volunteer and contribute, but if you can leverage, you know, your own knowledge towards that better future, I think that's even more powerful. I think that was very, that was very worthwhile advice, Martin. This, uh, this stuff makes, gets me emotional. <laughs> well, it is, it's, it's a difficult topic. And I think one of the wonderful things about having the, the opportunity to interview people like yourself is that it allows our listeners to connect to people that are right on the front lines and have their experience. Because a lot of the, our listeners are people that are just starting their careers. And they're looking for tangible ideas for how they might make a difference. So I, I think that, that that's very worthwhile. Now, we're, we've sort of come to the end of the interview, and I asked sort of three wrap-up questions to tie things together that are sort of fun. So the first question is, what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to people? <laughs> we'll, we'll make a note in the show notes of these. Absolutely. I, I have... Uh, it's Christmas time's coming. Yes. Hanukkah, so people will be looking for presents. I have three books that, uh, that all speak of optimism. I, I realize that they, they're all very positive. They're about uh, making something good out of a dire situation. The first one, which was a eureka for me, as, as, and it was early days with Peter, was Natural Capitalism, which was written in 1999 by Paul Hawken, uh, Amory Lovins, and Hunter Lovins. And it was, the, the, the eureka was the idea that environmental responsibility and profits are not mutually exclusive, right? That, that we need industry to help bring solutions and there are business opportunities in solving the climate crisis. And, and that's a very important idea in today's debate, right? Where, oh, ad addressing climate change is going to kill our economy. No, it's actually going to grow your economy. You're going to have a thriving economy by doing that, right? The second one was, is Cradle to Cradle, 2002. Uh, that was William McDonough and Michael Braungart. And uh, I know that uh, you, Craig, give this 
or used to give this book to new employees at Dialogue. Is that, That's is that right. correct? Yep. I'd walk yep. up to their desk and give them a, a book and say, this is something that you should understand as being very important to your future. And uh, let's talk about how you can actually be part of making a difference. My, uh, my first copy was given to me by uh, Peter Busby in 2004, and it's signed by Peter and says, enjoy this and live it. <laughs> mm. So, and, and really the radical idea here was that manufacturing, again, could provide a positive impact on the environment, that there was no such thing as waste, right? Just feedstock or food for something new. And this was, again, early life cycle thinking. So uh, that was an important book. And then we've already... One, one of the things I found really innovative in it was McDonough split the waste, what he called waste food streams between technical and organic. Mm -hmm. And it's actually had a big impact on how I design because the notion of keeping them separate, because when you can't recycle... Um, organic stuff, you, you can let it rot naturally and become part of the soil and nourish the soil, so forth. And you can recycle technical, but if you mix them together, you can neither recycle them nor mm. let them return to nature. So that's a, it, it's a subtle difference, but it's a really, really important insight. And simplifying it down to the idea of food, right? A, a, yeah. a source yeah. of nutrition. A food cycle as opposed to waste cycle. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, the, Second the th question. Oh, I didn't finish. I got one oh, more. Oh, sorry. Go on. No, we'll go on. But I mentioned it earlier, and that's Drawdown uh, by Paul Hawken. And uh, I, that, was a, that was published in 2017, and our Nature's Path client actually sent me a text with a bunch of pages photographed on his iPhone. <laughs> and he said, read this. That's great. What a great client to have. Exactly. You know, and, and it inspired and, and, and it, was, it was so cool to see that full circle, right? And I, I think what's amazing is that it's, it's, well, I mean, it's hundreds of researchers from around the globe that contributed to this. And, and Paul Hawken is essentially just a convener of that, right? But uh, it addresses energy, food, infrastructure, uh, land use issues, materials, transportation, and even the impact of education on women. Like uh, thinking of education as an issue of sustainability uh, was, was pretty cool. So there you go. Thank you. That's, that's a good list. Second question, if you had the power to implement one change, one innovation, or one policy in cities around the world that would have the effect of significantly reducing CO2 emissions and or helping cities adapt to climate change, what would it be and why? <laughs> King for a day. King for a day, yes, or president for a day. Um, well, I would, I would start with the fact that 85% of our global greenhouse gas emissions come from burning fossil fuels, right? And, and we shouldn't be burning fossil fuel for heat or transportation. Uh, it's too valuable a commodity and, and can never be replaced or renewed. So I would eliminate vehicles that run on fossil fuels. And, and as a car nut, this is a real tough one for me. <laughs> so um, I, I think we, well, we know that extracting and burning fossil fuel is bad for the environment. It contributes to climate change. It's really bad for our health. It costs society untold trillions in havoc. And it creates a financial political power structure that we see today in Saudi Arabia, right? So it would be such a simple and such a complicated idea, right? But at the heart of it, the internal combustion engine is 20% efficient. 
We would mm -hmm. never accept technology that consumed right. resources where 80% of the output was waste heat, right? But as a car nut, aren't you really fascinated by the cool new technologies like Tesla and the Leaf oh. and, and Ford coming out? I think those are awesome. It is exciting as hell. And, and you know what I'm thinking about now is how do I take one of the classic beautiful cars that I love and convert it to electricity, right? To electric yeah. power. And it's easy to do. Uh, and I think it, yeah, the key they'll, is, they'll be able to do it. They just have to. They just have to get on with it. Absolutely. And 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 I don't worry about the classic cars. They they don't get driven enough to be part of the problem. But Tesla has already proven that EVs are not only viable but they're desirable. Right? Mm -hmm. They're the new status symbol. And yep. and that's what Elon Musk was trying to do. I he, think that he was brilliant doing that. He turned it into bling. As opposed he, to he, being just very functional and worthy, it became sexy. Yeah, and he, and he didn't try to compete in the low-end mass market. You know, he yeah. said, I'm going to go for luxury and, 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 and get them on board, right? So, um, but I think that what I would do is I would put a, a, a one-year deadline in place, right? So that the auto industry, the transportation industry had one year until they could no longer sell fossil fuel-fired vehicles, yeah. right? And um, that would allow the, the fossil fuel production industry to transition. And um, I think that, you know, that, that, that would help uh, make the transition to 100%. The key is that if you make that commitment to no more uh, fossil fuel, then suddenly the, the whole R&D effort escalates, right? And, and we'll be there. Yeah, and also I, I think we're sort of seeing a tipping point like right in the last couple of years i've got a sense there's no one that's not on board with going electric in the um, transportation industry like it's it's sort of like the, the, yeah. they're just ramping up as fast as they can and i think they've had a setback mm -hmm. with the current administration in the united states but but going forward i think it's it's going to be quite quite fast there's again no excuse right yeah. it's it's all there uh battery storage and and uh, and uh motor efficiency all that stuff has just ramped up in the last little while so so third question if you could publish a full page spread in the sunday new york times or the globe and mail for that matter of anything you wanted written or graphic what would it be <laughs> the best question of all <laughs> i love it um, well, I, I, you know, for some inexplicable reason, there are still people, seemingly intelligent people, who don't believe the science, right? Uh, so wait a minute, did you say seemingly intelligent? Yeah, no. <laughs> really? We had a dinner party where uh, we didn't know this couple that well, but we had them over for dinner, and and I was, you know, always been impressed with this man's intelligent, you know, and, and he was <laughs> just so smart and well spoken, and and. At the end, you know, just before dessert, found out he was a climate denier, right? <sighs> and, and I didn't know what, he was like, do you guys need, I don't think we can, I think we can skip dessert, right? It was just, <laughs> I was shocked. I, I Tell thought, me this was like 10 years ago. No, it was two years ago. So, oh, God. Yeah, and he had an entirely rational sounding arguments for, you know, how the scientists had gotten together. It was a cabal, so they would get research <sighs> money. You know that one, right? And uh, yeah. anyway, so I've got a, I've got a quote, and I, I'm going to see if you can. This Ray Cole showed me this quote, and yeah. and, he, and he asked me to guess who it was. So if I read it to you, I'll see if you might already know. It's been around for a while. So 
A very solid scientific consensus indicates that we are presently witnessing a disturbing warming of the climatic system. Most global warming in recent decades is due to the great concentration of greenhouse gases released mainly as a result of human activity. Who said that? Hansen. Hansen? No. Climate scientist? Nope. You see, I thought it was oh. David Suzuki, right? It's, it's, a, it's okay. a total David Suzuki kind of quote, right? That you, Who was it? Pope Francis. When? 2015. Wow. And, and I, I, well, I fell off my chair, right? Because... Um, good for him. Yeah, good for him. And is that the quote in the paper? That's the quote. I would try to publish a little more because he said a lot, right? Um, yeah. It's the encyclical letter. And it was published. Yeah. Uh, it was published five months before COP twenty one. So he was being very strategic, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, it was May twenty fourth, twenty fifteen. And you know, this is this is an amazing for me. It, I, I almost fell off my chair because it accepts the scientific basis for climate change. It identifies human activity as causes for climate change. It connects the, the, the fact that climate change will have the greatest impact on the poor. It identifies a moral imperative to addressing climate change. And it was delivered by the leader of the largest well-organized and funded religious group on the planet with over a billion followers, right? So that's mine. <laughs> Perfect. So closing question, is there anything that you would like to ask of our listeners? I'd go back to our earlier conversation, get engaged, stay engaged, uh, leverage your expertise and your passion to make uh, positive change. We will, we will get to the right place. That's great, Martin. Thanks so much for your time. Finally, where can listeners find you on social media? <laughs> I am a social media Luddite. Um, the only place I participate is LinkedIn. And okay. uh, that page hasn't been updated since I joined Dialogue. <laughs> so there you go. So we'll, we'll get your LinkedIn thing and, and we'll get you to update it with maybe some quotes from this, uh, this podcast. <laughs> yes. What do you say? I think that's a great idea. Um, LinkedIn does actually provide some, some good value for us, but I'm very skeptical on social media, especially now. Thanks very much. I really appreciate your time. It was a lot of fun. A super pleasure. I appreciate it. And I, I love the questions that you've put together. And I really appreciate, I, I've been listening to your podcasts and, and um, every one of them is excellent. Every one of them left me with something, something new that I, 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 I hadn't thought about or, or something that connected one idea to another. So uh, well done and thank you for doing it. Well, it's the, it's the guests. They've been all wonderful, including yourself. So thank you so much. Thank you. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash tfcipodcast. This podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So... If you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International. 
who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening.